and uh, then we're going to see um, the, the last three horsemen of the apocalypse, and then we're going to consider how important it is that we pay attention to what God is doing even now. So, um, Okay, so, yeah, hit uh, where it says slideshow up there. There you go. And then from beginning. There, now, ha-ha. You didn't get to see that. Everything you just saw, you didn't see. This is a line, okay? So, for those of you who are wondering, it's actually a line above a line. You know, see that smaller line down there? That doesn't mean anything. It just came with it. But this is, this is, this is a line represents seven years. This is the seven years of the tribulation, okay? Uh, three very distinct parts of this tribulation, beginning, middle, and end, okay? So... Yeah, this is, I, this is deep stuff. I mean, you know, it's, this is not something... You, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I have no PhD, so, so I, do, I don't do deep. Uh, but, but the tribulation starts... This is what we saw last week. The tribulation starts with the signing of the, the peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. So the Antichrist representing uh, however much of the world he represents. And that is the act that begins the tribulation. So day one of you know, 365 times 7 is is that. That is the very first thing that goes on there. Uh, We saw that last week. Number two, the Antichrist breaks the treaty. And we're going to look at a couple of verses uh, to demonstrate that, or one in particular, Daniel 9, verse 27. And if you say, didn't we hit Daniel 9, 27 last week? Yeah, and we'll probably go back there again a few times too. This is just, uh, in Daniel chapter 9... God is laying out to Daniel uh, a a prophetic vision from his time forward, a a vision of what is happening for the Jewish people. And this verse 27 is talking about the last of 70 weeks of years. Uh, And uh, so Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 Uh, Speaking of the Antichrist who is going to come, the prince of the people to come, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. The decreed end is poured out uh, on the desolator. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Other versions say it a little bit differently. But halfway through this, this seven-year tribulation, he's, or seven years, he's, seven-year peace treaty, he's going to break the deal, right? And, and, you know, most treaties last until someone breaks them. You know, it's like the winner is the one who can break the treaty first. Because that's what treaties are. Treaties are agreements that are arranged, and, and, and everybody knows that it's only good as long as it's good. And, and that people tend to not follow treaties. Uh, they, they tend to follow them as long as it is in their best interest. Well, halfway through, he's going to decide it's not in his best interest. Okay, I'd like to accompany that verse or partner that verse with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You might say, we went there last week too. Yes, we did. <laughs> okay, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Speaking of this man, the man, he's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Okay, and so that's what we see here is, is at the midway point of the tribulation, this, this character is going to reveal himself for who he really is. He's going to, probably, I'm presumably, right? In order for this to happen, there has to be a temple. There is no temple in Israel now. Probably, I mean, and this is speculation, there's a lot of speculation. We want to separate speculation from, from clear scripture. Speculation is how we think it might work out. Scripture is what it says. I think, I think these two numbers are pretty solid, right? Uh, probably this midpoint is when he takes his seat on the t- in the temple and claims himself to be God. There must be a temple by this point. In, in all likelihood, the temple is built between here and here. In all likelihood, the peace arrangement that he gives is what allows the building of the temple to go on, and the temple will be built on those three and a half years. My speculation, again, is this is going to be a dedication ceremony for the temple. It just works really well. And he's there, and instead of dedicating the temple to the God of the Jews who it's supposed to represent, he pulls out a seat and takes a stand and says, I'm the guy. You know, he pulls out or has this throne rolled out or whatever it is. Says, it's me, it's me, it's all about me. I am your Messiah. And, and some people are going to, to deal with that well. And some people are not going to deal with that well because they're going to know exactly uh, what it meant, uh, what it means, okay? Uh, so we, we look at other things on the tree, on the timeline. Again, it's speculative. Uh, but what we see is, is this is probably where the first seven seals are broken, is over the period of this seven, three-and-a-half-year portion. Uh, and, and I say that not just uh, out of the blue. Uh, there are several things said that are about to occur that are going to take three-and-a-half years to happen. Okay, so uh, let's look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. And we're just going to, to visit a few different verses. We're not going to try to find deep meaning in them. We're looking at the time frame that these different things are given to happen. Okay, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside of the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if you are a whiz at math, you say 42. If you divide that by 12 months of a year... It's three and a half years. Wow, you are whizzes at math. That is an amazing thing you just did. Okay, so what we're saying is this trampling of the temple courts is going to, going to last for three and a half years. Okay, but we're not done. Oh, by the way, uh, I want to say something about these three and a half, or 42 months because we're going to start looking at days and the number is going to be 1,260 days. And the 1,260 days are to represent... 42 months. Because <laughs> if you divide it by 30, you come out with to 42, right? And, so you're, you're, and you go, well, all months don't have 30 days. In fact, I, I looked up the poem so I could get it right. Uh, 30 days has September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, except February. It's a different one. That's a really lousy rhyme. You can't rhyme one with one. That's, that's bad. I learned that in like third grade. Okay. Um, uh, it has 28 days clear and 829 each leap year. <laughs> 
<laughs> they worked at that way too hard. That's a really, really bad poem. But what they're pointing out is not all the months have the same number of days. Okay, once again, we are speaking. We want to recognize. Remember we talked about how in a vision, everything is what it means. It's not the literal what it says. Same thing with these months. 30 days is a prophetic month. How do we know that? Because we see it in Revelation where we find 1,260 used as an equivalent of 42. 1,260 days is the equivalent of 42 months. And so we just come up with this rule, or we observe the rule, in a prophetic month is 30 days. And we just recognize that when it says 1,260 days, it's saying 42 months. Uh, So Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the the temple courts are given over for 42 months in verses 1 and 2. Verse 3, the witnesses are going to prophesy for 1,260 days. Why does it use a different phrase? I don't know. <laughs> you know they're, 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 I think maybe he's making a distinction between you know, the, the two things, that one is good, one is bad. Uh, I don't know. I haven't really studied that part out. But we find, we find first, the Gentiles trample the courts for 42 months. Then we find the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. Then we turn to chapter 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, and the woman represents Israel. We'll find out a lot more about that when we, when we get there many, many moons from now. Uh, but she is protected. What we're looking at now, again, is the time frame, 1,260 days. Revelation 12, again, verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she was nourished for a time times and half a time. So we have another, you have, we have a time, and then if the times equals two times, that makes three times and half a time. So, so we find another way of saying this, but it's the same time period, right? And that's what we're seeing is this same time period is, is repeated over and over different, different ways. Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, so I flip one whole page. Right, Chapter 13, verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So we find the same time period. So what we find is, is we find this, this three-and-a-half-year time period uh, coming into play again and again and again, and each time he's describing something else. But what it certainly appears is that he is describing different events that are happening during the same time period. So during this time period, this is happening in the temple courts, and this is happening uh, outside the temple with the two priests, and this is happening with Israel, and this is happening with the Antichrist, and these things are all happening during this same three-and-a-half-year period. Well, the logical place for that is in that period there, right? And if all those events happen there, then that means the first seals, the, the seven seals, uh, are the, the, these things are taking place in the first three and a half. And, and the first three and a half is mild and gentle by comparison to the second three and a half, right? Uh, and so we, we look at these, these seven seals, and we place them in a timeline, and we say this is probably the first half of the timeline. Uh, and it, it may be significant to note, it may be really important to note, in fact, it's the whole basis of this sermon, that while what, there, what is going to happen is significant and it is huge, it is not overtly miraculous. 
It is not going to be clear to anybody who is not looking to see God in there that God is working. You know, we, we often will talk about how God worked in our lives, but the skeptic will listen with ears that don't hear what you say, and they just say you're interpreting it in the way that pleases you. Well, these things are going to be unmistakable for the person who has eyes to see, but because they're not going to see somebody, somebody standing up and saying, let this be done, you know, they're going to be skeptical and they're not going to see it, okay? So let's start looking at these horsemen. I'll leave the screen up, but give myself some light. Uh, the, the, so we look at the three horsemen. Let me read Revelation 6, verses 3 through 8. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should, one, should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay? These three are listed in order. You know, we have, we have war, we have famine, we have death, and they're listed in order, but I don't think they necessarily come in order. I mean, they come in a logical order, a, a logical kind of sequence, but I think they are companions that travel closely together. Uh, it's not as if we're waiting for one uh, to, to come and then the others. Uh, and, and so we, we uh, see them coming in their order. But I, I think they, it's more that they travel together. Uh, the Antichrist came in peace, but he brings war. Famine and death naturally accompany war. And the scope is what's enormous about this. A quarter of the earth will die. A quarter of humanity will die. But again, it won't be obviously miraculous. I mean, it will be, it will be huge. Nobody's going to miss four, one-fourth of the earth's population dying. But it will look like natural cause and effect. It will not look miraculous. So we look at the second horseman. He is war. Now, he's not like the first horseman. The first horseman, I said, this is the Antichrist. This is a person. But but, but recognize that that because we say the Antichrist, this horseman is a person, don't think that the other horsemen are people. They don't rep- it is what they represent. The second horseman is, is not a person who brings war. The Antichrist is that guy. But, but it is war coming upon the planet. The third horseman is not a person who brings plague and famine and pestilence. Uh, it is, or the third one is famine. It's not a person who brings famine. It is famine. The fourth one is not a person who brings death. It is death. And so the horsemen, don't, don't get confused and think you're going to, there's going, someone's going to see literal horses galloping across the earth doing these things, right? It's, it's interesting artwork, but it's, it's not real, okay? This is, this, so the second horseman is war. He's not an individual. Uh, it, is, it is something that happens. And so the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, right? He's going to come looking like the Messiah. He's going to come claiming to be the Messiah. He's going to come and take his seat with his crown on the white horse. Uh, he's going to pr- claim peace, but he is going to bring war. Interesting to think about how that is the opposite of what Jesus Christ did, right? Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. If you want to keep your place in Revelation, I, I can look it up for you, or you can follow along. Matthew 10, uh, verses 34 through 39. We have what Jesus said about what he came to do. And it's interesting, because if you're thinking ahead, you're going, right now, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, 
but to bring war. Matthew chapter uh, 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake uh, receives it. Right? That is, that is powerful. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to brought war. But he is known also as the Prince of Peace because he brings war that leads to peace. War that results in peace. Uh, he, he does not uh, leave us empty and stranded. He gives us something better than, 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 than the war. He brings war that leads to peace. The Antichrist comes in claiming peace that leads to war. He, he does the exact opposite. He comes with his words, with his talk, with what he claims, claims, but his, what he offers does not live up to what he claims. Now, you and I may know what it means on, on this earth to suffer the, the, you know, the sword, uh, not as in a literal sword, but we have had to suffer for our faith to some extent. We may have had family reject us. We may have had, had friends decide they don't want to be our friends anymore. We're not fun. We have to say, do I love Christ more than them? And we say yes, and we stay with him, and we lose them, right? He has brought the sword that, that brings suffering, but it results in peace. Because this is the same Jesus who said, take my yoke upon me, for it is easy, uh, light and easy to bear. And, and uh, we find that he brings peace. He is the prince of peace. Uh, but this sword is war, uh, and, and it will uh, not be pleasant. The third sword is famine, right? Uh, and he, he, he carries a scale, right? Uh, When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. So you picture picture the little hanging scale like when we think of justice and the the blind statue with the the scale in her hand. And and the idea is that there's there's something going to happen here, and there's there's going to be a set price. He says, says, "A, a quart of wheat for a denarius or three quarts of barley for a denarius. Uh, and and we, could, we could sit there and we could evaluate what exactly this means. To simplify it as much as possible, a quart of wheat for a day's wages. Or three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Okay, he's getting a point across. It will be all the working man can do to feed his family. Uh, everything he earns will go into just food. Because, uh, and, and because if, if you don't have family then you can go live high off the hog and eat wheat. (laughs) But if you do have a family, you're going to just have to make do with barley because barley is more available, uh, is a better price than wheat. And and, and that's the way it's going to go. uh, But either way, it's all you can do just to eat. That's what he is describing here. uh, uh, Forget the mortgage. Forget the car payments. You're not making those. You know, there's a prior, uh, the, the pyramid of priority, this is not the one that the psychologists use, but, but in the pyramid of priority, you know, making car payments and house payments and, 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 you know, all those things, that's up near the top. And when things get tough, you push those away. But down at the bottom, that bottom base thing, when you push everything else away, is food. 
right? Because you need food. And, and so you will, you will, you know, everything else. So car payments aren't being made. Mortgages aren't being paid. Uh, it, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to take all you can do just to feed the family. But when you stop making mortgage payments, then bankers go out of business. <laughs> When you stop making car payments, the guy who works at the used car lot, he loses his job. And the economy starts to crumble. And when the economy crumbles, the working man isn't making a working man's wage anymore. What is he going to do to get his food to feed his family? Right? He, he, well, he'll sell what he has for a while, you know, till that runs out. But you see how this famine leads to death. It's going to lead to abject poverty and death, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Uh, that's what this second horseman famine brings. When nobody is making house payments, you don't buy the barley. Death is going to follow close behind. But then he makes this interesting statement, don't harm the oil and wine. You know, well, that's a strange thing to say. Well, it is, but you know what these are? These are not necessities, but luxuries. Right? Oil and wine are really nice, but you can get by without them. You can't get by without food. Right? Food, bread and water. If you have bread and water, you can live for a long time. Uh, you, you, wine is nice, oil is nice, uh, but without them, you can still get by. Uh, people who can afford them, for people who can afford them, things are still available. That's what's that, the, see, the, 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 the luxuries will still be out there for those who have the money to get them. The, the simple man, the poor man, he's not going to get them. He's barely able to handle getting food. But the guy who's got money, the luxuries are still available, which is really interesting. If you go back to the Great Depression, I've got a book by Bonzer called Growing Up Bonzer, I think it was, the Bonzer Boys during the Great Depression. And through that, he rep repeatedly says the not-so-Great Depression. But an interesting thing about the Great Depression is while all we, what we hear when we hear Great Depression, we hear poverty, we think soup lines, we think people without jobs, we think people you know, traveling, looking for work, people you know, starving and, and poor and hungry and cold. But if you had money, it was a great time to be an American. Because if you had money, goods and labor were cheap. And you could, if, you, if you needed somebody to work for you, you had a, a large crew of people who were willing to work cheap. And if you wanted to buy something, it was available cheap because they weren't getting many people to buy it. If you had money, it was a great time to be alive. If you had money, if you had the job. Not everybody suffered during that time. Some people did just fine. That's what it looks like here. When we look at this, when he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, but don't harm the oil and wine. The luxuries are still there. The people with money can still have all of those things. And this combination of expensive food and, and available luxuries uh, might indicate, by the way, this is an economic disaster at least as much as a, a natural disaster. Uh, and, and we find that the system is collapsing like a depression, like the Great Depression, uh, as much as like any famine. But, but we find the fourth horseman, uh, verses 6 and 7, when he opened the third seal... Uh, I'm sorry, the fourth seal, the fourth living creature. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature, creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Death and sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. Sword is really easy. That's obviously war, right? War can kill huge numbers of people. World War I, 16 million people died. There, were, there, were, there, was, there was only a quarter of the population that the earth has today, then. 
It was, it, was, it was roughly a quarter of what we have today. The population has boomed so much. And in that day, they lost 16 million people in World War I. I'm, I'm hanging to World War I for a reason. I'll come back to that. Uh, many people who are killed in time of war are not killed by weapons of war because war brings with it other things. You know, you can't get out and, and work the field when people are coming by and shooting you when you try. You know, you can't work the plant when it's been bombed. Uh, things like that. War brings other disasters with it, and we find famine. And whether it's caused by climate conditions or by warfare or, 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 or if it's simply a, a drought, you know, whatever it is, uh, if, if crops are destroyed in war, if it's in inability to transport, people will starve. Food will be difficult to get, and, and people will starve. And yet if we think about the places that have food today because we in America send food worldwide, what happens when we have a hard time getting food? We're not going to be sending food to, to, to Somalia when, when America start, starts truly starving. Right, uh, we're, we're going to be getting, keeping everything we can get for ourselves, and, and we'll say, whose idea was CRP? Yeah, <laughs> because it won't work well for us at that time. Uh, people will starve. But then we get to pestilence, disease, things like that. Uh, we, and we, there, there's a couple things that, that jump into our minds uh, pretty quickly. The bubonic plague or the Black Death. And, and so I did a little research. Between 1346 and 1353... Right, so a seven-year period, seven-year period, uh, going back uh, 600 years, more than 600, 650 years, 50 million people in Europe died. 60 percent of the Earth's po- of the of Europe's population at that time died of the of the Black Plague. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible thing. It was just Europe, but that number with what whatever I don't know what the Earth's population was at that time. It was probably about a billion. Uh, you know, it was, it was a fraction of what we have now. Uh, in 1918, interesting, a hundred-year anniversary ago, right? A centennial ago, the, the flu spread throughout, the, not the United States, but around the world, and approximately 50 million people died of the Spanish flu, I think it was the Spanish flu, the flu, in 1918. Okay, 1918, remember what I said about World War I? <laughs> World War I, between 1914 and 1918, 16 million died. The last year of World War I, where 16 million people died, 50 million people died of the flu. Right? In incredible numbers. Uh, of these different things, the horsemen are using pestilence will probably be the, the worst and most significant cause of death. And, and, uh, but it doesn't look miraculous. Right? We get flu shots every year. Why? Because we don't want that to happen again. Right? Be, because we want to protect ourselves from these things. We, 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 are, we, we take measures not to get it. We don't want to. We know how dangerous it is. It's going to come. And then he says something kind of interesting. Uh, pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. I'm going by wild beasts. Uh, it's, it's hard to see how that one figures in. I, I did a little fun, had a little fun on Googling. Uh, I don't know how many people die by animal tax in, in the average year, of how many different animals, but I found some interesting ones. First of all, I'm going to rule out venomous creatures, because they're no fun. Uh, but, but if I left them in, then snake bites are way up near the top. Uh, number one is the mosquito, but I'm not counting him, because it's hard to get excited to, you know, by wild beasts of the earth. Mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's just like, but, but at the same time, that very likely is part of what his talking that is, and the mosquito, by the way, is considered the most deadly animal on the planet. 
175,000 deaths to mosquitoes, no, 725,000 deaths uh, by mosquitoes in the average year. Okay, worldwide, 250 people a year are killed by lions. Okay, I didn't actually know that happened. Uh, But uh, 250 people a year are killed by lions. Twice that amount are killed by hippos hippos also. Elephants. Elephants. I didn't know elephants killed people. (laughs) But but elephants, elephants kill approximately 500 people a year, and they say the number is rising. But hippos, are who, who it said 500, are considered more dangerous than elephants. So I don't know what to do with that. Sharks, five. Five. Yeah, because that's it. sharks get all the news. I mean, think about it. If, if, a, if, a shark, if a shark killed 500 people a year, then it gets to be old news really fast. It's not worth reporting. <laughs> but as, as why we don't hear about lion attacks and elephant attacks all the time. But sharks are dramatic, so five shark, shark attacks in a year. Today I am wearing, just for this, this illustration, my crocodile hide belt that I got on Mex- Mexico mission trip in 2005. For those of you who were there, $15 which is like 70,000 pesos. <laughs> and uh, just to say, ha, I won. But a crocodile, crocodiles are responsible for 1,000 a year. 1,000 a year. But they all pale in comparison to man's best friend. Yeah. 25,000 people a year are killed by dogs worldwide. Yeah, what do you see? I have a cat. <laughs> and, and he's man's best friend. And you go, why? You know, maybe he, when he licks you, he's just tasting, saying, not yet. <laughs> but but if, if you take all these numbers together and add them up, and you come up, if you say a million people are killed by wild beast attacks in a year, and there's 8 billion people on the world, which another way to think about it is 8,000 million, uh, what percent is 1 million? It's like 0.0012%, something like that. I might have, my decimal point is, you know, some, some of you, yeah, really, it's an it's a extremely tiny thing. So you look at this and you say, wild beasts? How do they figure? It doesn't seem like that number should be worth mentioning unless something is going to change. And, and I thought about that report about the elephants where it said, and more, you know, the attacks are increasing. And, and we, we know that the interesting thing is as people move into animals, living places, it seems like animals are returning the favor, right? And we hear more about animals in cities. You know, it's like, it's not like seeing a moose here in Davenport. I mean, sorry, that's actually not that big a news. It's fun. It's fun to see a moose in Davenport, but it's not all that common, all that uncommon, I mean. Uh, but, but when you see a wolf in Spokane, you know, when we have cougar sightings in town or right outside of town or, you know, something like that, then, then we, it seems to be something that's happening now, uh, just the beginning of birth pangs, I think. I think this is something that will also increase uh, tremendously. Something's going to change. And it's going to be a net result of one quarter of the world's population is going to die in this three and a half year period. One quarter of the world in th- over three and a half years. And, and it's huge, and talk about getting people's attention, but it's not going to lo- look overtly miraculous. 
unless you have eyes to see it. It will not look supernatural. It will be dramatic, but, but not supernatural. And when you think about it, back to 1918 again, if two billion people died then, there would be nobody today because that was more than the Earth's population in 1918. Uh, if, of course, it's, no, we're, not, we're not exactly 8 billion now. It's like 7.7, .7, so maybe it was exactly one quarter then. I don't know. Could be close. I, I want to talk about the application this has for us today because aside from knowing this and being going, wow, this is interesting stuff, uh, this is written for our benefit now. It's written for the benefit of readers from the year 90 or 95 or whatever year Revelation was written through the end of life on earth, right? It is written to benefit everybody at every stage. So how does this benefit us now? Well, uh, first of all, I want to say all this is going to happen and it is a direct result of Jesus opening the seals, but I want to camp on that not looking miraculous uh, aspect of this. It will look the opposite of miraculous. It will look like natural cause and effect. And I think very likely it might be our very just God saying, okay, you choose not me. I'm going to allow you to live without me. And, and we don't know. I mean, we can talk. We can, you know, how many close calls have you had in your lifetime? You, have you ever thought, wow, there was an angel looking out for me? Well, he's just been called off duty, right? And, and, and for in three and a half years, with, and I don't know that's what's happening, but it makes sense. It, it, is, it, it allows a natural cause and effect, non-obviously miraculous thing to, to, to look like this. Uh, and and uh, God's people will easily see that God is doing this because it's what God's word says. But those who are not aware of God's word will not come to that conclusion. The rest of the world will not. And the eyes of faith see God at work. And God really is at work. And, and, and just because people don't have the eyes to see it doesn't make it true, doesn't make it real. When you have eyes of faith to see God working and other people don't see it, that doesn't make you wrong. <laughs> it just means you can see what they cannot see. You will be the one that is right because God is at work. And most of what God does is not with a lot of flash and bang. But it's just, he kind of is quietly working. I keep thinking about the, the Frank Peretti book. I think it's Visitation is the one that's actually set in Davenport, but he calls it something else. Uh, it, we've got it in the, in the library if you want to read it. And, and in that book, there's a lot of overtly miraculous things going on. They're all demonic <laughs> And God, who works and brings things out to the good, there's nothing overtly miraculous in it. When I read that book and realized that, I thought, wow, this guy is a good writer. <laughs> because it was, it was God clearly won, but he didn't use a lot of flash and bang. He, he didn't have to. God is at work, and he is doing big things. But he is usually not making a lot of fuss about it. It's for us to see if we have eyes to see. If you remember why Jesus taught in parables, you know, he, the, the apostles came to them and said, why do you always teach in parables? He said, so that seeing the, eye, the words of the prophet will be fulfilled. That seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear and their hearts are not warned and they do not understand. And you go, well, why would you teach that way? It's because he wants to reward those who respond with faith. But those who don't respond with faith will not see it. It is, it is a principle that God has used in the past that Jesus explained par parables by, and it's something that is important for us to remember today, that God is working. You and I and our changed lives are the proof of that. You and I and our changed lives, that, that is, is kind of fun 
to look back, and, and for some of us it's been so long that it's hard to remember before you got saved, but to look back at before you got saved and look at you now and recognize how much you've changed, right? For me, among other things, hair color, belly size, right? <laughs> but those aren't what I'm talking about, you know? Think about, think about, hopefully this is a good comparison, how much you pray now compared to what you used to pray. How familiar you are with God's word compared to how you used to be familiar with God's word. How you get up on Sunday assuming you'll go to church, planning to go to church, as opposed to planning to do something else. Right? The, 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 the changes in your own life, the language you use, the things you talk about, the things you put in your own body, right? the things you watch, the things you say, uh, the, the, the number of changes, and you start, when you start t- taking note of those things, you go, wow, he's, when did he do that? When did God change that? I don't remember it happening. <laughs> that is usually the way God works. Don't lose the eyes that see that. Okay? Now, the, the, as we move on in, in Revelation, it's going to get dramatic and miraculous. <laughs> you know, it's going to become really obvious, but, but at this point it's not. And, and I think it's a lesson to us for what we see today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for what you are doing in our lives. I thank you for the opportunity to, to, to take, a, take a moment and, and just look and see and recognize how much you have done already. Father, I invite you to keep working and keep changing. Lord, I ask for eyes of faith to see and a heart to understand and, and a mouth to give you praise and worship. I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.